Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is February the 10th, 2016. This is episode 1728 of the Survival Podcast. And today I've got a good one for you on a subject we really need to talk about. Your personal privacy and personal security online, and not just from hackers that would like want to get your data and sell it to some guy in Mumbai so he could buy stuff and ship it to Nigeria, but from your own government. Because the government does spy on you. In the words of my guest today, Justin Carroll, I really want you to listen to this and let this sink in. Your personal emails, phone, and VOIP conversations are eavesdropped upon. Your purchases are recorded. Your movements are tracked. Your creditworthiness is bought and sold. Your search history is compiled along with your Facebook and Instagram pages. All of this is used to create a profile about you that highlights your interests, your sexual preferences, religion, income levels, education levels, and ultimately your level of compliance with an increasingly heavy-handed system, and it will never forget. Fortunately, you can opt out of almost all this information. To learn all about that and more, just hold on for a bit as we get through our housekeeping segment. Before we bring Justin on, let's start out by taking care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Defense Consultant, the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at FortressDefense.com will help you to complete that final linchpin in the gun operator triangle of efficiency. You know, people often ask me, what is the next gun I should buy? And what I say is maybe you should invest in some training. If you already have a good shotgun, a rifle, a handgun, and maybe a few other things for hunting and sporting purposes, instead of just buying another gun because it's cool or it was on the cover of a magazine, maybe you should invest invest in that final linchpin, the final moving part in that triangle of efficiency. You know, first you have the gun. You buy a gun off the shelf. It is what it is. It does what it does. You can rely on it to be what it is. Ammo is the same way. Good quality ammunition. You can never have too much of it, but you can buy it off the shelf. Those two things are commodities. There's one thing that really requires ongoing investment. That's you, the operator. You're the final moving part. A gun and ammo in the hands of somebody that doesn't know what to do can be more dangerous to the people that are trying to defend themselves than it can be a help to the situation. And it's also the case that even if you know how to handle a weapon professionally, you know what you're doing mechanically, there's a mental component when lives are on the line that cannot be condensed down into words. It has to be trained. It has to be drilled into you. You have to realize that if you get into one of these situations, what you'll end up doing is falling back to your lowest, not highest level of proficiency. That's where training kicks in and takes over. The kind of training you'll get from Frank and his cadre at FortressDefense.com. Check them out today. Learn how you can become an efficient operator of that weapon that you're carrying for the defense of yourself and others. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it. From the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the 
canner by the case, they've got it. Do you want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it. Check. No problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators? Got that, too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. With that, I want to actually let you guys know about something uh, Stephen Harris has available. I put out a post on the blog yesterday, but I know actually the majority of people that, that listen to the podcast don't go by the blog to get the podcast. You get it in iTunes or Stitcher Radio or on uh, Google Play or Android or whatever. So... Um, a lot of times I put stuff on the blog. If I don't say it on the air, you don't know about it. So Stephen has gone out and put together an incredible set of videos. The first one is at his website. You might imagine it's got a one, two, three, four in it. Bug out one, two, three, four. And it's 84 items plus that you would never think of for a bug out bag. And they're just outstanding. He also has put together a separate video, jam packed, three hours and 45 minutes. Um, at cellphone1234.com, uh, and those are outstanding. He's got a relaunch of his battery bank videos, and you also can get everything all together in one shot at energy1234.com. We need to talk to Stephen about so many domain names, but he's got great stuff at those domain names, and uh, he's got a huge discount for you guys, 30% off until uh, February 17th, 2016. Just go by the survivalpodcast.com and you look for a, a post called A Special Message from Stephen Harris. There'll be a link in today's show notes. And hopefully uh, a lot of you guys know about this because it is one of the better products I've ever seen. Um, the, the level of detail Stephen goes into with a single product is amazing. What he's done here is absolutely outstanding. Some of the uh, stuff he's come up with you just won't see anywhere else. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1728, because the episode 1728, Alex Shrugged has three fours today. Hard to pick from, really. I have the Bering Strait and Seward's Folly. I have Have the Stars Moved, or Have I? And I have A Spy is Born as a Man, No, a Woman, Wait. Uh, I'm going to read the first one, the Bering Strait and Seward's Folly, because it really plays a lot into modern day. I mean, what if we didn't do what we eventually did, and what if the Russians weren't the ones that did what they did in the first place. Yeah. With his dying hand, Emperor Peter the Great signs the order that sends Virtus Bering on a journey of exploration has been the Emperor's fondest wish to modernize Russia. He has been building up his navy and hiring skills he needs from various seafaring nations such as Denmark. That explains how a Dane, like Captain Bering, was selected to head this expedition. It is known that Russia extends very far to the east, but they have only a vague notion of what is out that way. The Emperor is worried that about European domination of those eastern regions, so Captain Bering sets out on a secret mission to map the eastern coastline. The Emperor is dead by the time the Captain finds the strait that will one day bear his name. Captain Bering is not the first European to reach the strait, but he's the first to map it. Most global maps will split the world at the Bering Strait and place Alaska at the far left of the map. My take by Alex Shrugged. Alaska was part of the Russian Empire until 1867, when they made it known they were willing to sell it. Secretary of State William Seward negotiated a price for $7.2 That was cheap enough, but no one knew what to do with it once the USA owned it. 
People jokingly called it Seward's Icebox or Seward's Folly, as if he had traded a cow for a handful of magic beans. But when oil was discovered, uh, but then oil was discovered, and during the Cold War, Alaska became part of the of NORAD, early warning systems. Nowadays, NORAD is used to track Santa Claus from the North Pole, but back then it was tracking possible ICBMs, launches from the Soviet Union. Alaska became a buffer zone. There is still tension between the two countries. On a TV episode of The Deadliest Catch, one of the Alaskan fishing boats was being shadowed in Bering Sea by a Russian fishing boat. There wasn't fishing. Yikes, it was a tense moment. You know, kind of my thing about this is Alaska is a huge piece of the United States, just in geography alone. And it's, it's, it's interesting to postulate what would have happened if later on, you know, Seward had not negotiated the purchase of Alaska in 1867. It was not a U.S. territory. What if Russia had hung on to it, especially through the Cold War? How would that have affected World War II? What if Russia said, yeah, we still don't want this place. You don't know what to do with it, because that's really what it was at the time. Without it being developed, it's this icebox, right? So what if Russia would have sold it to Canada? How might that change modern society? Or what if the Japanese had been interested in it? I mean, this is one of those things that when it happened, there's no way to know how critical it would be later on. And I think that's a lesson in history. A lot of things that you see happen around you can have massive impact in the future, for good or for bad. We just never know. Like destabilizing nations in the Middle East. How bad might that be 20 years from now? Or... God willing, how might that actually turn itself around? Uh, I, I think the former is more likely than the latter, but the lesson here today, folks, is when something doesn't look like it's that big a deal, sometimes it is. My take by Jack Spierko. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you can help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more there. But I'm going to tell you something today because I'm an honest guy. I really am. I'm one of the most honest people you'll ever meet. You may not like me, but you won't doubt what I'm saying. Don't join the MSB today. Don't do it. I'm serious. It's not a marketing tactic. Do not join the MSB today. Even if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, etc., and qualify for a discount, don't email me and get the discount and join today. Because tomorrow I'm going to run an MSB sale, and I'm going to offer a really great deal that's a better deal than even the first responders, etc., get as a discount. It's going to be awesome, and if you want to be a member, it's worth waiting one more day for. So don't join the MSB today. And yes, again, I am being completely serious. With that, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show, bring on our special guest, Mr. Justin Carroll. Justin is a veteran of 15 years of service to the United States government. He's a plank owner uh, with an elite military, uh, Marine Special Operations Command. He's worked on a uh, contractual basis with another government agency and has deployed to some of the most dangerous, inhospitable places After completing his last overseas deployment, Justin spent five years teaching digital security and identity management to hundreds of soldiers, sailors, and Marines in the United States Special Operations Command and was instrumental in the development of highly technical surveillance program currently in use abroad by U.S. Special Operations Forces. Justin is the author of Your Ultimate Security Guide, Windows 7, and your ultimate security guide, iOS, and is currently co-writing the complete privacy and security desk reference. Justin resides just outside of Phoenix, Arizona. 
He's here today to talk to us about the personal privacy in an age of modern mass surveillance and uh, what you can do about the fact that the government's surveillance apparatus is now pointed at American citizens in an increasingly alarming way. And I don't really know what to do about all this, but I think Justin might be able to help us. So with that, hey, Justin, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hi, Jack. Thank you for having me on. Glad to have you here, man. First question I have for every guest, as always, kind of tell us about your background, who you are, and how you got to do what you're doing. Um, I know you have some military experience and some other governmental experience, but maybe start a little further back. Like, is that what you thought you'd be doing when you were like a, a kid in high school or something? How'd you end up even getting into that world? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I pretty much knew from a, a very young age that some sort of military service was was where I really wanted to be and what I wanted to do with myself. Um, I, I wasted a little bit of time right out of high school. So it was about a year after high school. I joined the Marine Corps. Um, I spent eight years in the Marines. Uh, most of that was with, um, Marine reconnaissance units. And, uh, I had the privilege of being a, a founding member of the Marine Special Operations Command. Um, from there I got out, um, gained uh, gained employment with a, a couple of other government agencies. Um, I have to be fairly vague here. Um, did that for a couple of years, uh, mostly overseas stuff, doing a lot of the same stuff I was doing in the military and, uh, came back, decided it was time to grow up and get a real job. So I went to work at the Marine Special Operations Schoolhouse where I spent just under five years. Um, that kind of led me into where I'm focusing my energy now. Um, one of the things that I was tasked with doing there was developing a digital security curriculum. I'm sure you remember uh, from your days in the, in the Army, uh, we do a really good job with like the military green radios and securing those communications. Uh, we're, institutionally, the military is a little bit behind the curve on non-traditional, non-standard communications um, and, and just computer security generally. It's kind of a mess. Um, so I was tasked with writing a curriculum for that for our schoolhouse and had a really good supervisor who gave me a ton of latitude, um, kind of let me choose my own where I got my own training, and that led to just a world of interest in this sort of thing. So that's kind of how I landed where I landed. Well, that's interesting. I, I really never have thought about that, right? Because when I was in the, the Army, there was no concern about you know security breaches over the Internet. Because there wasn't an internet as we know it today. It didn't exist. There was, it was people like me that all the way back in the 80s were playing around with the old, oldest chat boards and stuff like that on Commodores. But soldiers weren't making Skype calls. They weren't, they weren't sending emails to their family at home and things like that. And a lot of things like that are, you know, potential breach of security that could be dangerous, maybe not even just for operations, but for the soldier's family or the Marine, uh, the Marine's family, uh, because, there are people that want to do harm, and the soft target is where the cowardly enemy always goes. Um, and I really never thought about before that the military had to even figure out, like, okay, how do we deal with this? Because the technology moved faster than the government, because that's just the way technology is. Yeah, that's that's absolutely correct. So when I went to Iraq in, in 2004, uh, the entire platoon had one computer that everyone sat down to send their emails back home on. And that was about the extent of it. And now 
guys who go down range have an iPhone in their pocket, have a laptop back in their in their birthing space, um, as well as on the on the operational side, the lowest level things we do, uh, like reconnaissance patrolling uh, with a with a backpack and a rifle, there's a computer in that backpack. So yeah, it has increased by leaps and bounds, uh, and the attendant security that should go into that has not necessarily accompanied it. That's interesting. I mean, I'm just, I'm just thinking back now. Uh, in 1991, I was deployed to Honduras for six months. And we made phone calls twice. And they had this giant satellite dish thing. They flew in sling-loaded via Chinook. And you had to make this call that there was so much latency and delay in satcoms back then that you had to talk like you were on a radio and say over when you were done speaking. And the first thing you had to tell a loved one you were calling back in the States was how to use it so they knew what was going on because there was a four to five second delay in the call. And then, yeah, by 2002, 2003, there's, you know, you've got mail's been replaced with DSL all over the place and, and networks are going in in third world nations. That's, that's really mind boggling when you think about that time scale. It, it is. And, and I've not, I've not been like my, my military service doesn't span four decades or anything. I, I joined the military in January of 2000. It really hasn't been that long. Wow. And I still remember writing letters and like physical handwritten letters. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, and going to a phone center um, to call back home. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. But we'll, we'll get on to the real subject here in a second. But you're just making me reminisce. I remember a buddy that got real, real shit because I think he racked up about $500 in phone calls to a girlfriend from <laughs> Panama. Um, yeah, and today, you know, you have Skype, you have FaceTime, you have all these things. Anyway, l let's get into the main talk. We want to talk about security so um, and privacy. So everything you just explained, it seems like totally rational things for the government to be doing from a standpoint of providing security and, and surveillance and making sure that bad things aren't released to, to bad people to do worse things with. But we're in a day today where we're the primary people being surveilled And of course, the old saying is, if you have nothing to, to hide, you have nothing to fear. Um, I laugh at that, but I'd like to hear from you. Why does privacy matter even if you, quote, have nothing to hide? Okay, so I, I, I love this question. I love this response uh, that people give me when they say, I have nothing to hide. I'm, I'm not worried about this. I don't, I don't care. Um, the fact is, you probably do some, have something to hide. You just don't realize it yet. Um, and this is not even with the ideological side of this argument, which, which I could also make when I go to the bathroom, I'm not doing anything wrong. I don't technically have anything to hide, mm -hmm. but I still desire that privacy. But on a, a much more pragmatic, uh, approach to this, um, there's, and this is not an exact number because I don't think anyone knows an exact number, but they're around about. 27,000 pages of federal laws, another 100,000 or so of uh, civil statutes. It doesn't include your state laws and ordinances, your county, your town, your city. Um, so even if you think you're doing nothing wrong, you may in fact be doing something wrong. A, a, a better example I used to use um, in, in lieu of the, the going to the bathroom example was When I have sex with my significant other, I'm not technically doing anything wrong um, until I realize that in some states, 
unless you're doing that in a very prescribed manner and for a specific <laughs> purpose, you might actually be doing something wrong yeah. in the eyes of that state. So just because you think you're doing nothing wrong doesn't necessarily mean that's the case in the eyes of what I kind of view as an, an increasingly heavy-handed federal government. Yeah, I mean, I, if a cop showed up at my door tomorrow and said, Mr. Spierko, we'd like to, to come inside and take a look around, I'd say, do you have a warrant? And if he said no, I'd say, we'll see you later. And that's not because I think there's anything here that he might find that's illegal. It's that that's the way it's supposed to be. And in the end, I don't know if there might be something that could be tied to something that even though I didn't do anything, looks like I did something. And I've watched enough Nightline TV to see people have cases made against them that I'm like, I, I can't believe that person's in prison today. Uh, and I've seen some that, you know, eventually are released. So th that alone is just a, a fear factor. I guess another thing for me, though, is you don't know what they're going to decide is not acceptable tomorrow. So while you might be completely uh, kosher, let's say, today, who knows who's in charge of what tomorrow? And, and these dossiers that they're basically building on every American, I, I liken it to, can you imagine if this technology had existed in Nazi Germany in 1925? And what right. World War II would have looked like for your for the European people, as bad as it was, how much worse it would have been had that technology been available to people like you know Hitler, et cetera. Yeah, there would have been no no French resistance. There, uh, yeah, it would have been a very different scenario. And that's a that's another really great point is we don't know what tomorrow holds. So um, I, I'm a frequent listener to your show, and I on the on on anarchy and libertarianism you you refer to marijuana a lot doesn't infringe on anyone else doesn't yep. hurt anyone um certain states colorado oregon have made marijuana legal in the eyes of that state it's still not legal in the eyes of the federal government and right now they're kind of getting a pass on it um we don't really know what's going to happen under the next president or under the next governor of those states who decides to enforce that federal law um, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. So, uh, yeah, there, there's, that's a good point. There's myriad ways this, uh, I mean, this, we have, this Christie has no chance of becoming our next president, but he is campaigning on the statement of if you elect me, I will put the potheads in jail where they belong. So that's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty blunt. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, Is the adversary really the government? Is that something preppers, et cetera, should be concerned with? People that are of libertarian mindset, like, is that really who the adversary is here? Um, that's a that one's a little tricky. So, the answer is possibly. Um, like we just discussed, we don't really know where this is leading into the future. How this information will will be used later on. But we are kind of making irreversible decisions right now and putting that information out there. So if that is the case later on, there's there's no calling that shot back. There's no recovering that that data that you've put out there. Yeah, and I mean, for people like me, I'm a public personality. I don't really have much recourse. But I always try to delineate for people, just because I do doesn't mean that you necessarily should. I mean... If you're going to have people that are public personalities that come out and present information, et cetera, you have to take that risk. But so, I mean, if, if they wanted a profile on me, the survivalpodcast.com episode one, two, three, right. But for the average person, there are steps they can take to, to mitigate this stuff. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Huge steps. And I'm going to, I'm going to back up just a little bit, uh, and caveat that previous answer just a little. So I, I, I try to be very private from everyone, including the government. And it's not necessarily because I fear the government right now, although I do have concerns about, like I said, how this is going to be used later. My, my bigger concern though is that the government, I don't know that they're necessarily equipped to protect the information that mm-hmm. they have on me. If you're familiar with the, uh, the breach against the Office of Personnel Management. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, t- I, I've held security clearances at just about every, at very, very high levels. So that includes my SF-86, which is all my biographical data, my family members, uh, the, my fingerprints. So, uh, you know, it's questionable whether I can ever use my fingerprint as a reliable means of identifying me. Um, because we're talking about a very sophisticated nation state adversary that has that now. Um, my, any records from my polygraph, this is a massive, massive amount of data about me and not just biographical stuff, a lot of personal stuff too that I was questioned about and gave honest answers to. Um, so I, large repositories of data are dangerous, uh, regardless of who has them because somebody else now, get them. Yeah. It's now on that person to protect those. Yeah. I mean, going back, I think it was about five years ago, I got a letter in the mail, dear veteran. And it went into this thing about how somebody at the department of veteran affairs had lost a laptop computer. And yep. there were over a half a million veterans, uh, personal information on that computer, including things like our social security numbers, where we discharged, where we went to school, basically our entire personnel files. And it, the letter ended with, but we believe there's nothing to be worried about. We will keep you informed. <laughs> really? There's nothing to be worried about. So a half a million people that serve this country just had Their entire lives, basically, as far as the military knows about them, lost by some, some ass clown with a laptop who left it on a park bench or something like that. You don't really know where it went. You have no idea who has it. The person that has it at that time probably doesn't even know what they have yet. They just stole the laptop. But don't worry about it. And all, so all you're talking about a sophisticated hack, and then I'm talking about the old cliche, there's no patch for stupid. Both of those are serious concerns when government has this much data on people. Absolutely. Government or anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what does Apple have on people? Jeez. <laughs> well, we I, we can we can get into that. Um <laughs> but but yeah. Uh I I I'll sidebar here a little bit. Um I'm much more confident and this is a recent change for me. I've been a dedicated Windows guy for years. Um I'm a MacBook iPhone guy. Uh, because Apple's kind of taken a, a pretty hard line on, on the privacy piece and Apple doesn't make money off of data. They don't market information. Uh, they make money off of hardware that they, off an actual product that they put in your hand that you pay money for versus Google, who gives you a lot of stuff for free. Um, but I'll, I'll default back to the old maxim. If a product is free, you're not the customer. You are the product. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. I've, I've always had concerns about that for a variety of reasons. One, for what you just said. Another thing is, like, if I actually base my life on anything that's free, uh, it has a potential to go away because they don't have a revenue model. So either they don't have a good revenue model and I could lose use of it, or they do have a good revenue model and that's even a little more concerning. So, yeah, a lot of these free things. I mean, 
I guess Facebook would be an example of, of, a, of a company that, that's got massive amounts of data on people. And um, I know that I can gain use of that data, not access to, but use of that data just in, my, in my, the advertising platform. So if I want to run a post on Facebook and I want to advertise it, I can get very specific with the types of people I want to see my advertisement, down to age, interests, et cetera. And personally, as a business person, I look at it and go, well, why wouldn't Facebook offer up that demographic data? To a marketer, that's just juicy gold. But that is an example, though, of how, how much data they do have on people. Absolutely. Facebook is another, um, from my perspective, another noteworthy offender um, but yeah, all these, all, like all the, the things that make Facebook easy and fun and familiar, uh, to its user base are, make it a more effective data collection platform. Google, um, Google gives you Gmail, Google Translate, Google Books, Google Docs, Google Drive, Google Maps, Google Street View, and they don't charge a dime for any of this unless you're a, a pro user. But something like Google just became the most valuable company in the world, a little over $150 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and not, over 90% of that is from products that they don't directly sell to their user base. It's data that they've collected from their user base. Um, all the stuff you put in your calendar, into your email, into your Google Drive is all scraped to, to give Google more and more granular information about you to make you a more valuable product. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's been plugins I've used for WordPress that I run a little uh, app inside of uh, Firefox called Ghosty. And one of the reasons I run that is I'll, I'll use a plugin to do something with the site, but then the first thing I do is load the site with Ghosty to see, okay, did 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 they plant something in that app that's actually giving away info about my users? And it's it, I probably half of the apps that I, or half of the plugins that I've installed into the blog for site functionality, I've immediately removed because it wasn't like they're tracking user visits or something. They're tracking very specific. They're planting cookies, things like that. And I try to keep that stuff off my site. There's a limit to what you can do. I mean, this is something people need to understand too. I run analytics on the site because I need to know ebb and flow of my site, who's coming, who's visiting, that type of thing. And I don't mean like where you live, but I need to know, hey, when I put out this type of content, it attracts this type of people from this type of source. You can't run a site for a business like that. But there's a big difference between that type of data collection and a lot of the analytical solutions like Google Analytics. I won't use them because that's exactly what they do. They give away analytics for free. It's one of the best analytics platforms out there, but they have access to all the data. Right. And, and if you run Google Analytics on your site, you're limited in what you can see. You can see, uh, I believe you can see down to the city that that traffic originates from. Yep. But you can, like Google no longer lets the end user see IP addresses, which they used to. But Google absolutely collects all that. Yeah. How long you spend on a page. Um, there's actually, there's a, a website you can go to or a browser plugin called Heatmap that will show you basically how your eyes track across a page based on your mouse movements. Um, all that data is collected by uh, any number of platforms to include analytics and very sophisticated flash cookies that are very, very persistent on your computer, hard to get rid of, 
and collect just a, an astounding amount of information off of what you look at on the internet. Yeah, um, it's 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 shocking. I, I'm familiar with the the eye mapping stuff. I, I used to run software like that um, in my marketing days when I was you know that was my full time gig because it helped. See, that's the thing. A lot of this stuff people don't understand. It helps a person actually develop a site that works better for a user. It's not like they're made with nefarious ends, but then they end up collecting data that is is is. Uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. I'll put in one place, you know. It's 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 centralized and it's then, aggregated. Yeah, yeah, aggregated is the word I was looking for. And see, at that point, that's where it, it's not that the initial action was was malicious, but the potential for malice now is extreme. That's absolutely correct. And you know, I I think the problem is systemic um, because the internet is basically free. Surveillance has become the business model of the internet, and uh, this was a very, very early on, uh, ideal with the, you know, kind of the early, to early architects of the internet was this should always be free, be free for everybody. So how do we monetize this? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately that's just the mindset. Now I'm not paying for anything on the internet. It should be free. I want free email, free this, free that. And a lot of people, the vast, vast majority are unwilling to, to pay directly for anything, which there's alternatives to that. I pay for my email. I pay, I pay for a lot of things that a lot of people don't. Um, and that's, that's kind of the trade. I run my own server. That's, that's, you know, and I have my own firewalls, et cetera, on that server. And, but not everybody can do that. I mean, I, my server bills about $800 a month and, and that's extreme. You don't have to go to that extreme, but even that there's still, concerns but it's not you're not handing it to them anymore right 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 you know so we can we talk a little bit about basically some some prepper opsec for for online activities okay so um how how deep in the weeds do you want to get here because we can really you're the expert man you go where you, where you think you want to go man um well i'll just i'll just uh address that statement i i hate to refer to myself as an expert or be referred to as an expert because this changes every single day. So I'm still very much a student of this whole topic. Um, and hopefully always will be. Um, so I see a lot of, um, I guess kind of poor OPSEC generally. And, and before we really delve into, to OPSEC measures, you kind of have to ask yourself, what is your threat model? Are you, are you trying to hide from the government and with the realization that with a government like ours, you're only going to be able to hide to a somewhat limited extent, hide your activities or your interests or whatever it is you're trying to, to obfuscate. Um, or are you just trying to prevent, I hate to, I hate to keep picking on Google, but we'll use Google. Are you just trying to prevent them from building big databases on you or are you trying to actually prevent people from knowing where you live and the fact that you have a safe full of silver and gold and guns and ammunition uh, and other other preparedness items so um i would say first and foremost uh the the very first piece of advice i would give any survivalist prepper person with an interest in this is Stop posting pictures of your stuff on Facebook, on bulletin boards. Um, I think, I think running personal blogs, I, I, 
for some reason, I have a little bit more comfort with that than posting all over bulletin boards about everything you do. Because even if you're very, very careful, um, there's quite a few things that leak out in that. Um, as you become, there, there's quite a few case studies against criminal organizations that have been infiltrated. Uh, as, as a certain comfort level with the group builds, the more and more detail you're not necessarily willing to give, but just little stories that you relate and anecdotes all add up to a very, very good picture of you over time. All that information is extrapolated out. Um, also with posting photos, uh, you have the whole issue of uh, EXIF data in your photos, which can include uh, very, very, like basically a 10-digit grid to wherever you took that photo, which is a, it'll actually be a latitude-longitude um, so you should be very, very aware of that if you are posting that sort of thing on the Internet. Um, getting a little bit more, I don't know if advanced is the right word, uh, but connecting directly from your home Internet connection is probably not a great idea because like we talked about with Google Analytics and other analytics software, um, and your your IP address is correlated. Your inter, your outgoing internet protocol address from your router uh, is correlated, sometimes very very accurately with your physical location. Um, again, just because Google Analytics doesn't let the end user, the end website owner, see that IP address doesn't mean Google doesn't see it. And it also doesn't mean that I can't go out and pay for a service like Woopra that does let me see those IP addresses if I'm running that website, that bulletin board, whatever the case may be. Um, another or, or a way that you could potentially defeat that is use a virtual private network. Uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with those, Jack. Um, they're not that expensive. That's Honestly, it's like wearing a seatbelt for me now. I turn my computer on, I connect to the internet, my VPN automatically connects. That's the first thing I check before I open a browser is make sure my my VPN is connected. And if you're not familiar with what a VPN is, it's a it's an app that you install on your computer, your phone, essentially any internet connected device that will give you an encrypted connection to a remote server. So other than the privacy benefit of not revealing your home IP address, it also encrypts your traffic. Your internet service provider can't look at it, and they definitely monitor your traffic. Um, if you're on a public Wi-Fi, the owner of that router is not going to be able to inspect your traffic. If you're on your work Wi-Fi network, your IT department's not going to, going to be able to inspect that traffic. Um, it, it gives you an encrypted connection, which gives you security, it also gives you that privacy layer by obscuring your IP address and your physical location. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I mean, and back back in the day, so to speak, it was actually an expensive thing to do. But there's there's products now that are you know ten bucks a month or less that do this. Right. So I use um, I, I use a couple different VPNs. The one I recommend is Private Internet Access. It's really really easy to use. You download the app, pay for a subscription. If you buy a year. Uh, it comes out to like three thirty three a month. It's okay. That's really almost cheap. nothing. Yeah, very cool. I mean, it, you you also hear a lot of stupid things on TV that I think gives people uh, false senses of security. You know, like you'll 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 see the crime shows. Well, he bounced through two proxies, and you know, like you just go to these online proxy networks. And I think those are useful, but 
your your connection from that that's I think what people don't get. So my, your connection from the proxy to the next place is cloaked from where you are, but everything between you and that proxy is not. And, and I, I really don't think people understand that because there's been so much well nonsense on shows like Criminal Minds and stuff like that about it. Yeah, that, that's correct. Once you once you exit that remote server, or once your traffic exit, it's it's in the clear. It's available unless it's encrypted with another layer like HTTPS. If you're going to, if you're logged into Amazon and you're making a purchase, you're encrypted all the way to and from Amazon. So even once you leave the the safety of that VPN, you still have some measure of protection, but Most sites are not HTTPS all the time, unless you're conducting financial transactions, buying something. And hasn't the government been making some of these larger companies basically tell them how to to, to break their encryption? Um, <laughs> they've tried. Um, so right now, Apple is fighting this. Uh, Google, actually, to their credit, is fighting it with the Android platform. Um Yes, uh, FBI Director James Comey is really big on manufacturers being able to decrypt their uh, to decrypt phones, and really this is this is a data at rest issue. This is data that's at rest on that device, not stuff that's going out over the wire. Um, currently, the iPhone, if you put a passcode on it, it's AES two fifty six encrypted. It's really really well done. Android is not typically encrypted by default, but you can go into the settings, go into security, uh, and encrypt that phone. So if you lose it, you have a good level of assurance that no one is going to pick up your phone, unlock it, and see your photos, whatever data you have stored on there. Um, also, New York and California are both pushing legislation right now to charge uh, any hardware manufacturer, I'm sorry, any operating system manufacturer, $2,500 per device sold if there's no way to to basically bypass the encryption on it. Mm. Um, which, if, if that happens, I, I see, I don't know, there's, there's three potential courses of action. Uh, the one I hope that happens is it really pisses everyone off who wants to buy an iPhone in California and can't. Um, but that depends on the manufacturer holding firm and saying, Well, we're just not going to sell in California. Gotcha, gotcha. The other, the other potential option would be they make a California compliant model, or they just fold and say, "Okay, we'll do it." Neither of which would be ideal. Yeah, yeah. It, it really shows that there's a desire to make sure that there's nothing that you can ever hide. That that's that, that's the goal. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But even even w this was a news item today. Uh, the FBI has been working on the San Bernardino, one of the San Bernardino shooters phones uh, for two months and can't get into it. And they they claim we can't see the communication. So just having your phone encrypted doesn't make you invisible, nor does it make a terrorist invisible, nor does it make a criminal invisible. There are still license plate readers that track you pretty much everywhere you go. Um, if they had iCloud, I don't know if it was an iPhone, they haven't released that, but yeah. if it was and they have iCloud backup enabled, they can subpoena that. Apple can access that. If it was just regular text messages, that's all available from the phone company. Um, they can still see who they talked to and for how long. They can still see where they went. Even with no location services, your cell phone 
is a really, really yeah, accurate I mean, granular tracking device. I'm trying to think of what could be there that could be useful. So if they had made notes that were never actually sent anywhere, that were just on the on basically the hard drive, or if they had photographs that they did surveillance with or something like that, that could actually be on the device. And But like you said, if they have iCloud enabled, then it's automatically backing stuff up. Uh, but you would think somebody up to, that was doing what they were doing wouldn't do that. Um, but you'd also think they wouldn't use an iPhone or a smartphone either. It used, you know, for that type of stuff, you use a, a, a throwaway, you know, temporary type thing. Or uh, use, or use in-person meets, which is really, um, I mean, if you have a phone in your pocket and I meet with someone who's maybe already a suspect or maybe it's questionable, like, oh, this is really outside of this person's normal circle of activity to, to drive two hours west and meet with this guy. Why did he do that? Um, that data is still out there. I'm not, I'm not, again, like you said, sure the utility of actually getting into that device. Um, there's still a lot of information that we can gather on, on th- this couple's activity leading up to that. Yeah. And I mean, that's a case. There's always these balances of cases where, I, I'd kind of like that information known. I, I, I kind of understand why we would want to know that. But then I also think back, I think it was in Colorado several years ago, there was a guy, he was under investigation. I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't like he was a pedophile or you know somebody who was killing people or something. And they wanted access to his laptop. And he had encryption software on it. And so they ordered him to provide the passcode to de-encrypt the laptop. And he said, no. And he, they said, well, you can't do that. He said, yes, I can. You're asking me to testify against myself. I'm basically taking the Fifth Amendment. I refuse to say anything. And the judge said, basically, bullshit, and issued a court order placing him in, in basically uh, noncompliance with the court for not, you know, for not providing the number. And basically said, well, you'll sit in, in, in jail till you give the passcode. And so, like, there's this incredible case that can be made for why this stuff's necessary and yet there's this incredible intrusion upon privacy I, I, I'm not in disagreement I'm not in disagreement um, I, I, I like you I, I do uh, I do believe we need that we need I, I'm certainly not anti-law enforcement most of my student audience these days is law enforcement Um so I'm certainly not against them. I'm not against the government. I'm not against the military as far as keeping us safe from terrorism because that it is a thing. Um, but there has to be some balance with that. We, we can't, we can't purchase a little temporary safety by giving up essential liberties. Um, in my opinion. So yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. But I, to my point, there's still an, just a, a huge amount of data out there about this couple. Um, I mean, and that might be a bigger subject here is, so what can people in our audience do to protect their personal emails or text messages or voice communications? Because you know, we kind of talked about what you can do with your desktop with VPN, but you know, what about your phone? Okay, uh, so I, the first thing I would say on that is make sure it's encrypted. If you're not using a passcode, like roughly half percent of smartphone owners are not doing, uh, you should be you should have a passcode on that device. If it's Android, you should take the time to go into those settings, 
go into your security settings and make sure it's encrypted. If it already is, it will it will display that, and you won't have to go through the process. If it is not, uh, you'll have to charge the phone to eighty percent, plug it in, and let it encrypt it and go through the process of. Uh, it's pretty painless to you. Um, just let it run. So that'd be my first piece of advice. If you lose that phone, it has your email accounts on it. It has tons and tons and tons of photos on it. It has all your text message history, all your calling history, all your contacts, just an incredible amount of information. So I certainly don't want someone to be able to pick up my phone and see everything about my life. On We still call it a phone. I really hate that terminology, yeah. even though I do it. It's really a computer. Um, and it should be protected the same. It's a computer, computer that has a phone in it, right? right? right. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. It's a computer that I can make calls from. Um, and that's, I, I mean, that's not even how we mostly use our smartphones. <laughs> um, so that would be my first piece of advice is put, is encrypted. Uh, if you lose that phone, don't lose all the data on it as well. Uh, another thing, and this is kind of getting in the weeds. I don't love the, the, the fingerprint unlock that's been defeated by all sorts of security researchers. Um, and probably your fingerprints are all over the screen of that phone. So it's, if, if I find your phone, it's probably pretty easy to find your fingerprints. Um, and then also back to what we were talking about just a moment ago in the U.S., any in any law enforcement jurisdiction whatsoever, I can be legally compelled to give over my fingerprints. Password might be a little, may or may not have to give that over, depending on the pain that I'm willing to. I, I don't remember. I can't remember it. You keep yelling at me, and I can't remember it. I mean, at least there's a plausible right. deniability where I can take your thumb and slam it down on, on, on some ink, and I know what your, your fingerprint looks like. I can Absolutely. force you, even if you say I'm not complying, I can physically force you to give me your fingerprints. I, you, <laughs> you can't do it with um, with a password. I mean, legitimately, you guys stressed me out so much, I, I don't remember anything anymore. Yeah, there we go. And I, I have traveled through some uh, rather hostile international borders um, in, in my professional life. And that is something that will occasionally happen is I will encrypt the computer with a password that I don't know. I'll email it to someone else. And if I get asked to open that computer, I honestly don't know what the password is. I can leave that computer there. They're not going to get into it, but I can't give them the password because I don't physically have it. Once I get where I'm going, my buddy emails me the password. I open it up and change it to something that I know. Um, and that's really getting into the into the probably a little bit more into the weeds than than we need to be, but yeah, it's a technique. There's um, a lot. Of, there's some low tech techniques. I mean, book codes. Uh, oh yeah. You know, one of the things I've seen people do is they set up a joint email account, an email account they both have login information to, like an online one, and then they never actually send an email. They just leave the email in the draft folder so that both sides can go in and look at the draft. And I, I know there's probably some ways to work around that, but it's a, it's a lot more difficult to determine than, you know, emails floating around through, through space, so to speak. It is. And it's, uh, it's dependent on your threat model. So David Petraeus, uh, <laughs> during his brief stay as the director of the CIA, <laughs> uh, got caught through the same thing. So 
it came to light that he was having an affair. Um, Paula Broadwell had sent like a threat. Is that what he was doing? They were using an email account like that? Yes, they were using a Gmail account. So they, uh. did, they didn't know who the female actor in that scenario was. Yeah. So they found the email account and they went, they said, um, they went to uh, the, they, they subpoenaed Google and said, give us all the IP addresses that this email account has been logged into from. So they went to all those IP addresses. Well, they went back to Google and they said, for each one of these IP addresses, we want every other account that was logged into from one of these. And obviously they sort her out pretty quickly based on that. Because it's, it's very unlikely that more than one or two people are going to be at that next hotel she's at or that next IP address. So yeah, that's, that's how they got, <laughs> how that, how you the see FBI. how disinterested I am in national politics at this point. I had no <laughs> idea that, but that was just like an, an old, kind of an old school way of, of not being so public with what you're communicating. And just while I've got, you know, I mean, how, how, how good are products like Hushmail? Um, Hushmail, I would not recommend. Hushmail has an avowed backdoor, uh, with the U.S. government. Mm. Uh, and backdoors don't just work for the person they were designed <laughs> yeah, that's, for. That's always the thing, right? <laughs> I, I mean, that's just the technical nature of them. They work for anyone who can find them. And there are some very smart people out there. Um, so, uh, the email service that I recommend is ProtonMail. It's free. It's open source. Jack, I'll be honest with you. Tomorrow, news could break that they're a front for the NSA. I, I don't know. Um, we, we, oh, that makes perfect sense, though, right? You, know, you just... Oh, we can't get in. Oh, it's impossible. And it's it, piped right into Salt Lake City, right? I mean, that's always possible. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm not a cryptographer. I can't, I can't download their source code and go through it line by line and tell you whether it's accessible to anyone other than the intended recipient and the sender or not. But, uh, based on, uh, based on certain things, like the fact that they do make their code publicly available and anyone can download it and look at it, uh, and they use the open PGP standard uh, for encryption, uh, things like that make me feel much more confident in them than a provider like Hushmail, who has, they have a financial stake. So they're very vulnerable to legal pressure. Um, Yahoo was, this was a couple of years ago now, um, Yahoo held some emails, uh, basically were pressured by the government with a fine of, I think it was about $250,000, 25,000 or 250,000 a day, a day until yeah. they made those available. Um, and I apologize for not knowing that, that exact amount, but companies that, so there's a, there's a real kind of fork in the road here. Some things that are free are better. And some things that are free will really get you in trouble, like VPNs. I would never use a free VPN because running a VPN service is incredibly expensive. You have to have bandwidth. You have to have servers. You have to have front end. You have to have back end. It costs a lot of money. So the ones that are running, there's a VPN service uh, called Anavo, O-N-A-V-O, that's owned by Facebook. Facebook paid $120 million for that company. And it probably wasn't so Facebook could give people a free, really secure VPN. Uh, it's it's kind of a collection pattern uh, platform for Facebook now. Um, Ola was another one uh, that 
sold user bandwidth. So if I had Ola on my computer, not really using my internet connection right now, they would sell that bandwidth to people that wanted to buy it. And it, that was used in several botnet and distributed denial of services attacks. So free with certain things is good. Free with other things, not so much. How about um, one of the big things that you hear a lot about that people use uh, because of the backlash with Google basically having all this data and in some ways providing data to government, uh, start page. Uh, start, so start page, um, I, I actually really like, uh, another one, another competitor with start page is DuckDuckGo, um, which neither one of those store any information about your visit. Um, they don't track you around the internet. DuckDuckGo does serve advertisements, but they're based on that one search in that one moment. So if I search new car, I might get an ad from Honda at the top of the page. Uh, but that isn't based on if I search new car today, I'm not going to get an ad for, for Honda two weeks from now when I open DuckDuckGo back up. They don't maintain any history about my searches. They don't log my IP address. Uh, they basically collect no information about me. They monetize directly based on that search and that search alone. Um, and same with StartPage. Um, I, I feel that StartPage is a fairly reputable um, privacy-focused search engine. Uh, and I say that because they have also been used on the Tor browser. I'm not sure how familiar you are with Tor. Yep. Um, and if Tor goes with it, that that's kind of a, a, a that's a pretty strong endorsement. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because like there are technologies that I think people aren't even aware that they're seeing. Um, there's an ad ad service technology called retargeting, and it's actually a very affordable way to advertise your product or your website. And again, it makes perfect sense why a company would want to use something like this. But then you have to figure out, well, what does this mean in the aggregation of the data? So the way retargeting would work is you put a little snippet of code on your website, and then you say, I'm willing to pay X amount per thousand uh, views of, of my banner advertisement, wherever. And then somebody comes to your website and then any other uh, site that's inside that network that also serves ads, and you don't have to serve ads on your site to use it as a buyer, um, will have code on their site. And, and a user that goes to that other site that has a tracking cookie now on their browser, it was like, oh, they were already at, you know, uh, ABC Widgets website. So ABC Widgets now is, is, is retargeting them because that helps keep the product in the consumer's mind. Like as a marketer, I totally, totally get this. So if anybody's ever wondered why, like you go search for something in Amazon and you look at it and then later on Facebook, you see that exact product advertised. That's how that happens because they're playing with each other inside and they're probably a little higher level than retargeting, which is the company, but it's the same type of technology. So you've got these mega sites, Amazon and Facebook sharing data, even if they're not directly sharing data, they're doing it through an aggregated ad network because those ads are very, very effective. If you've been to my site and you've been thinking about buying something from me and I hit you with it eight times over the next two weeks and you haven't bought yet, you're a lot more likely to go, you know what, I really do want that. And that's yeah. that's just another example. Like People have no idea that's, that's – and I'm sure you've seen that. You're on a, a website. Next thing you know, you're on a different website. You've seen advertisements for the website you were on last week. Or – I went to Tom Thumb one time, and so I know Tom Thumb 
somewhere in their corporate apparatus is sharing data with Amazon. I go to uh, Tom Thumb during like an ice storm, and I want something to watch while we're iced in, and they have the cheap DVDs. And they, they, remember the old, old uh, series from the 80s, the blue and the gray? <laughs> yeah. Right? So it was like eight bucks for the whole series. And I'm like, I remember that when I was a kid, so I bought it. And then next week, I get this, this you know, where Amazon hits you up with like things you might be interested in, and it's all Civil War shit. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So there's so much of that going on now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's some, there's some easy ways to. I threw away my Tom Thumb discount card after that, by the way. You know, I mean, yeah. So you can opt out of that tracking. And I absolutely do because that data isn't just shared between Amazon and Tom Thumb and whatever other website. It, it makes its way into the physical world as, as well. That's why you get mailings at home. Um, that's why just about anyone can go online in about 10 minutes of pretty easy Google searching. You can probably find that person's home address just based on their name and a rough geographical area that they live in. Sure. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I tell people to do is when you get to these, it's getting harder and harder because more and more of the email services are recognizing these different mail services to do this, but you know, you get to a site and it's like, if you want, you know, this free report or whatever, give us your email address. And that kind of starts the whole process of being marketed to and tracked and everything else. And there's, there's email services like trash mail and you don't even have to set anything up on trash mail. You just say, my email is, I don't give a damn at trashmail.com. <laughs> and then you go to trashmail.com and just put in, I don't give a damn. And you see whatever email was sent to that address in the last hour. And then it disintegrates and goes away. So that's like a, a huge way to avoid spam, but like my my email service provider, A Weber, if you try that with me, it says no, that's not a valid email. So, right. but you know, I'm doing legitimate marketing, but a lot of these people they just throw these, you know, again, free services that they use to collect uh email data, and you think about that, if your email uh for like email message services for like a, a business, if that product is free, how do they make money? I mean, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You, you're building this database for them is what you're doing. And, and that's true. That's true with any of this stuff. If I'm getting a product, I want to know where their money comes from. Are they monetizing for me directly? Do I pay for that service, you know, $3.50 a month or 10 bucks a month or a $100 one-time fee? Are they funded by grants and donations? Or are they really opaque about how they're funded? If that's the – or – you know, like Apple, are they funded through the sales of their hardware and things like songs on iTunes? If, yeah. if you can't, if the connection between the product and how it's funded is not immediately apparent, it's pretty apparent that you are not the actual customer. I, I'll keep falling back on that, but it's so true. No, it's absolutely true. I mean, somebody, nothing is free. And and all this stuff that people think should be free because it's ones and zeros, it takes a lot of money to produce. It takes a lot of money to provide it. And even if you were some benevolent person that just was going to dedicate, you know, 20 hours a, a day to, to coding stuff like this for people, it also takes money to secure it. So even if the company's being totally benevolent, if they don't have the funding to provide sufficient security for the database, they're subject to some other party breaching their database. That's absolutely correct, and it happens all the time. I, I mean, 
even even companies that aren't in the business of necessarily collecting information. Um, I mean, we saw the massive, massive breaches in late 2014, Target and Home Depot, mm-hmm. each one of those 50 million plus credit card numbers, um, sometimes with names, home addresses and phone numbers and email addresses. Um, home Depot is not primarily a, a data aggregator or marketer, but they do hold immense quantities of data anywhere that stuff is stored. It's, it's a, it's a risk. It's a threat. It's a really rich target. So like, that's actually a really important thing to kind of go into next. If there is ever a time you should be concerned, it's when you're purchasing something because now you're giving away not just your personal data, but your, your financial data. So how can individuals make their purchases more private and, you know, kind of going beyond what I just said, how, how does that matter? Uh, okay. So, um, I would say start at the baseline level with your day-to-day purchases, use cash money. Uh, if you're using a credit card, you're not, that, that's no longer a two-party transaction if you're using a credit card. That's now a three, four, five-party transaction um, with all the different places that information goes. Um, I didn't realize how big a deal that was until I bought my first home several years ago, and I had to provide three months of statements from every bank and credit card account that I had. And I was blown away when I printed those things out and looked at them because it's spelled out my whole life in minute detail. Because at the time I paid for everything with debit card, credit card, some form of plastic. Sure. And every stop at the gas station, every stop at the coffee shop, every meal I ate out, every time I went to the grocery store, every time I went to any specialty store, gun store, bookstore, whatever is all right there. How often I go, the amounts that I spend at these different places, uh, pretty, pretty granular detail that I was really not happy about just giving away for so long. Uh, so I transitioned to cash uh, almost immediately after that. Day-to-day transactions, almost exclusively cash money. Um, unfortunately, cash doesn't work all that well on the Internet. Correct. Um, so I still buy stuff on the internet and there's a couple different ways I approach this. Um, Amazon, I, man, I, I hate to say it. I love Amazon. I do too. Um, I'm not going to deny it. I, I, once they introduced prime, it, 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 it became like one of the, the best things in my life, but I'm aware there's a risk there. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, what I did is, uh, I, I, Immediate, almost immediately closed my Amazon account. Uh, once I kind of started getting into this and realizing all these recommended for you books down here, uh, were kind of creepy. Um, I, I mean, everybody thinks it's creepy when it's in their email inbox. Not a lot of people think about it on Amazon. And I didn't, there was a long time that I didn't either. I'm like, Oh yeah, that does look really interesting. Let me, let me read that. Um, so what did I, I, when my prime membership expired, I closed that Amazon account and opened a new one, um, in a variation of my name. So not hundred percent true name, not a hundred percent a lie either. Um, and I fund it entirely with Amazon gift cards that I buy at the grocery store. So go buy $300 worth of gift cards, Got you. $79 of that's gone for the prime membership. Uh, so what that does, it lets me buy stuff on Amazon. All I got to do is go reload those gift cards 50 bucks at a time, which, you know, depending on how much you buy on Amazon, you can buy 
obviously larger or smaller denominations. Um, that also has the added benefit of putting a different name at my home address other than my own in all these databases. So if you're searching that address on the internet, you're probably gonna get this other name bef long before you get mine. Um, so if you're looking for me specifically, you're probably just gonna go ahead and move on. Mm. Uh, so that's Amazon, that's really easy to do with Amazon, not so much with a lot of other things. Um, so there's a service uh, called Blur. Um, it's, I, I have no financial interest in the sale of Blur subscription. It is a paid service. Uh, I think it's about... Say the 30, name again. Was it Flur or Blur? Blur. B-L-U-R. Okay. And the 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 website is a bean.com. A-B-I-N-E. Because if you just Google Blur, you get a lot of... Yeah. You really have to hunt to find it. Um, so Blur uh, costs the neighborhood of 39 bucks a year, if I'm not mistaken. And it gives you a bunch of different things. It gives you masked email addresses, which like we talked about signing up for, you need your email for everything. So now I go to Blur, create a masked email address. It gives me a almost pseudo randomly generated email address that I can give out. I can see how many emails go through that address. Uh, and I can even kill that address if I want to. Uh, so I'm not getting Anywhere that information goes and I'm getting spam, I can just turn that address off. None of it will make it into my inbox. And, oh, by the way, I don't have to log into Blur to check that. It forwards it to whatever my email account is that Blur has. Um, Blur also gives me a masked phone number that will, I can give that phone number out now, and it will forward calls to my real phone. Um, that's another piece of information that you're asked to give out a lot that I really hate to give out. Uh, and then finally, Blur lets you create masked credit cards. So I put my real credit card number into Blur. I go to, uh, I don't know, pick a website. I go to the survivalpodcast.com and I want to join the member support brigade. 15 bucks, I go to Blur, say, hey, Blur, create me a mask card for $15. That's all the information I have to give Blur. Blur generates me a new credit card number. It'll bill my whatever credit card I have on file with them, but gives me a new credit card number, expiration date, CCV code, and billing address. I can use whatever shipping address I want, whatever name I want. Um, as long as I, in the shipping field, it'll charge blur. So the merchant doesn't really know where that came from. They know it came from a Boston address. Uh, blur doesn't really know what I bought. They know I paid for something on there. My credit card company says, yeah, I gave 15 bucks to this company called Blur. Um, and it really obscures the, the trail of like where that. exactly that went. Now, perfectly anonymous, definitely not. Um, yeah. There's a single point of failure there, but I think just for I I and I use. But I can kill that like, number yeah. anytime I want, right? What's that? I can kill that credit card number anytime I want, right, and create a new one. Oh yeah, absolutely. I make so a new, you could make a every week have a new person. credit card number. So if somebody ever got that number, it's useless to them. Yeah, and typically what I do is make it for exactly the amount of my purchase plus shipping and tax uh, or whatever. I see. So it's completely used up. If you have money left over, you can uh, you can refund it back to your account, back to your credit card. Um, and yeah, you can you can change that as frequently or as infrequently as you like. 
That's 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 brilliant because that's that's like one of the biggest risks out there. It's not just well, what if the government gets it? What if Google gets it? What if some guy that wants to buy a bunch of shit gets it? I mean, that's and that happens. I mean, so like another thing I've always done. I don't know if you talk about this at all, but whenever I go to a website that asks what my birthday is, I don't care if somebody knows that I was born on August second. I always put the wrong birth year. So that if somebody tries to to use that data to set up an account or something, it'll never match. Right. Yeah. You know, or you change it by one day, August first or whatever, and you know, I, again, for me as a person, a personality, it's it's different. I guess. I mean, I I can't hide everything and be public. It's it's impossible. But I think day to day, I mean, the average person has no idea what the risks are. Um. What else can people do to uh, to recapture some privacy in an age that's really a mass surveillance age? Because, and that's what I think we you know we say mass surveillance. It's not just the government doing the surveillance. It's everybody. It is everybody. And and like I say, I'm not worried about Google or Facebook or even the government coming after me in black helicopters. I'm worried. Of, my real worry right now is data spillage. I really worry about anyone's ability to maintain a, a large repository of data securely. Um, so getting back to, um, I'll circle back around to the cell phone stuff. So protecting text messages, phone calls. There's some pretty easy solutions to this. There's a ton of encrypted slash ephemeral messaging systems out there. Um, there's really only two that I use and recommend uh, on a day-to-day basis. They're both free. The first one is Signal. Signal Private Messenger. It's available for iOS and Android, and there's uh, beta desktop versions. That, well, there's a beta version right now, but you have to have a compatible Android phone. I haven't I haven't had the opportunity to test that out. Um, Encrypt your voice calls and text messages. So the the fatal flaw to all of these is they require two party participation. So if I want to call you on Signal, you have to have Signal installed on your device and I call you through that app. It's, there's no super user friendly. There's no, uh, account to set up, no username, no password. You install it, you give signal your phone number. They send you a text message to verify that you hold that phone number. Um, and then all your friends, family, whoever you choose to get up onto that app, you can now communicate through that app with also it's, um, use your data connection rather, uh, rather than your phone minutes. So I have a really, really low minute, high data phone plan. Uh, and that, that works for me because I don't talk on the phone all that much. And if I do, it's through one of these services. Um, you also have text messaging. You can send photos through it. You can do group messaging. Basically all the things you can do on your phone's OEM messaging app. Uh, but it's end to end encrypted with what's called perfect forward secrecy. So every time I send you a message, it's going to generate a brand new key pair for both of us for that return message. So if you intercept one message, you're able to decrypt it. It only gets you that one single message. You would have to decrypt every single one because they're all encrypted with a different key pair. That obviously that's all completely transparent to the user. All happens behind the scenes. Um, signal is produced by open, Whis- uh, excuse me, open whisper systems which is financed by grants and donations. Um, and it's run by a guy who goes by the pseudonym 
Moxie Marlin Spike, really, really well-known kind of industry leader in the IT security field. Um, really have a lot of a lot of confidence in this app. Again, though, you're not going to defeat that metadata collection. Um, who you text, how often you text them, how long your conversations are, how long you talk for, who you call on a daily basis, who you call on a weekly basis, uh, and who that one random phone call that you make once a year. Uh, that stuff's all still out there. Um, so don't don't think this makes you anonymous or invisible, uh, but it does protect your conversations in transit. And I, I have a lot of objections to mass collection of, uh, of, of communication content, which I do believe is happening on a, on a very large scale. Uh, you know, like we talked a little bit earlier, there is a balance to be found here. I think the big issue with mass collection is it's not focused. It's not targeted. Um, some people have, should have probably gotten some scrutiny, uh, like the Boston bombers, uh, who were, uh, you know, kind of in the country on questionable circumstances, probably should have gotten some direct scrutiny. Mass surveillance makes that really, really difficult because they're just such a large haystack to search for that needle through. Does that make sense? No, it makes perfect sense. And it's, it's also, it's kind of the false sense of security thing. Since we have this mass surveillance, we don't need to be worrying about targeting. And then all the resources, I mean, if you just look at the water it takes to cool the damn data center in Salt Lake, all those resources are now being used to, to, to carpet bomb this rather than, you know, use basically smart weapons technology and say, hey, look, these people here, you know, for whatever reason, and, and then, well, see, then you need a warrant. You gotta go to a court and you gotta follow the constitution. It's such a pain in the ass. I mean, I think that's, that's how they view this stuff. Right, right. And I will say being like coming, and, and I'm certainly no means a, a law enforcement guy or, or super high level intelligence background or anything of that nature. Uh, but based on what I have seen, there are still some protections in place for American citizens. Um, if you're, <laughs> if you're using a VPN that's ba I'll put it this way. I would not use a VPN that is based outside of the United States. Um, there are still some protections in there, but yeah, they, they pale in comparison to what they really should be. Uh, and I'm not, I'm also not a constitutional scholar, but really, uh, big proponent of the first and fourth amendments as well as all the rest of them. I think, I think if you're, if you're really behind the constitution, you have to be behind the whole thing. That's kind of the, uh, you know, you can't hang your hat on one particular piece of it. Um, that's just my opinion. Um, but yeah, mass surveillance is, is really kind of makes doing targeted investigative police work hard. There's just so much to sort through. Cool. Well, um, can you tell people how they can learn more about how to secure their data and all uh, by working with you? You have a website for that, right? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, so yourultimatesecurity.guide, which is a, a mouthful, um, mirrors the titles of my books, Your Ultimate Security Guide, Windows 7, and Your Ultimate Security Guide, iOS, um, I hope to get Android and OSX out this year and then start back rewriting the first two as all this stuff changes. Um, 
yeah, I stay fairly up to date on the website. Um, were you, were you done? I'm sorry. Oh yeah. Go okay. Ahead. Yeah. I just thought I heard you. I thought maybe I cut you off. I was going to ask you one thing, like, like one of the like most horrific things I think a person can do to themselves right now, because you mentioned Windows 7, is upgrade to Windows 10. Uh, that seems like the most uh, data collecting pile of crap that's ever been crapped out by Microsoft. So, yeah, uh, Microsoft used to make money selling Windows Enterprise and Microsoft Office to corporations, and now they're really coming coming into this game really heavy handedly. Um, there's also three updates that most Windows 7 users have probably gotten, unless they have taken pains not to get this update, that put a lot of the same privacy compromising features back into Windows 7. Um, I have a blog post on that. I can I can give you the names of those three updates if you'd like. Yeah, if you want to uh, just pop them into uh, to Skype after we wrap up, I'll make sure they're in the show notes. Okay. Uh, and then I can't remember the name of it. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. But, I mean, one of the most annoying things about Windows 10 is they keep shoving it in your face over and over with this pop-up you can't make go away uh, right. on all the older computers. And I can't remember the name of the the, the little program you can get na- uh, now, but I'll put a link to it. You install this little program, and it lets you basically shut that off so that okay. it doesn't bother you anymore. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of that or whatever, but I, I just can't remember what it's called. But it's, it's, a, it's a pretty small program, and it basically creates a little control panel that you can open and just say, I don't want to see that anymore because – like, I had to do that on, on my laptop because my wife uses it. And I'm like, sooner or later she's going to click on this damn thing and install that <laughs> monstrosity. I mean, seriously, that's that's the problem with it. Your, your, your kids or somebody is going to do it or your, your mother-in-law comes over and goes, it said to click. You know, and then all of a sudden you've got this monstrosity on your computer because it is, it is a monstrosity. I agreed. Absolutely agree. And I read an article the other day that they're going to optimize future hardware uh, to only work with, like, kind of like Apple's done with, yeah. you know, Mac works with OS X, uh, to only work with Windows 10, which totally takes the option to use 7 away. <laughs> which is, is really unfortunate for the, for us. Yeah. Buy those, buy those currently refurbished top end computers right now, then you can run those for a long time before they run out. I'm, I'm running a machine that I've been running for, no five years with Windows 7 on it. Yeah. Any, I, go ahead. No, I, I run 7 in a uh, in a virtual machine, but uh, I pretty much transitioned completely away from Windows, and it was all based on the 10, the Windows 10 privacy stuff. Yeah, what kills me is I have all these uh, these programs that I do all my editing with that are all PC based, and I have a beautiful. Mac sitting right next to my PC and it's just you know a matter of taking three or four weeks to learn how to do all those things in, in Final Cut and, and, and all, all those things that are just foreign to me that I haven't had time to do otherwise I, I probably would have transitioned by now myself yeah I'm, I'm still kind of going through those growing pains as well so hey man hey, I appreciate you being with us today Justin absolutely thank you so much for having me you want to give out that website of yours one more time before we wrap up Yes, uh, yourultimatesecurity.guide. And uh, you also have a web address that redirects to it called paracentric.com. So if you're in a car or something you want to try to remember it, 
Uh, you can go there and it'll redirect, but I will have a link in the show notes along with uh, the blog post and uh, that little thing to turn off the annoying Windows 10 gizmo. And uh, with that in mind, uh, as our closing music today is uh, playing, I-, I won't tell you anything about the song. I'll just say it's not paranoia if it's true. With that, this has been Jack Spirico today along with Justin Carroll helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Thank you.